It is the profound distrust of sexual love, which is the main feature of Platon's work throughout the 1920s. In what sense? Platon's great novels from the late 20s, Chengur and especially the Pit, the Foundation Pit, however it's translated, are usually interpreted as a critical depiction of the Stalinist utopia and its disastrous consequences. Here already I violently disagree. The utopia Platon of stages in these two works is not that of Stalinist communism, but the Gnostic materialist utopia against which the mature Stalinism reacted in the early 1930s. Dualist Gnostic motives prevail in this utopia. It's the so-called uh, biocosmism, which really acts, acts as a forerunner of today's uh, uh, so-called tech gnosis, technological gnosis. Uh, and it's uh, interesting how widespread this idea was. From Trotsky to hundreds of thousands of people were engaged in this movement. Lenin himself was one of the few who remained skeptical of Trotsky. The idea was that after winning political economic power, the only way really to win is for the working class is to remodel the human being in the genetic, physical, biological way. For them to create a new man didn't mean just a standard situation. It meant literally through uh, biogenetic and so on, the uh, interventions to change it. In, in what sense? Here, almost I would say, theology enters. The idea was that, again, after the working class took over political and economic power, the only domain that remained out of control is sexuality. Sexuality is the last terrain of bourgeois counter-revolution. And the plan was often mentioned openly that uh, this new socialist man will no longer need sexuality. In what sense? Not only that uh, uh, reproduction will be through uh, uh, direct biogenetic means no longer sexual population, but the idea is almost that of Maldrach. It's very radical. The idea is that in our ordinary lives, we are immediately caught into our bodies. For example, you feel pain and you immediately feel it. But the idea was that for the new communist man, uh, pain should be just an information. It lets you know. You know, the same as in a, let's say, machine, steam, whatever steam machine, if it gets too warm, you have some measuring apparatus which tells you to do hot and so on. But you don't have to feel it. Just an information. So the idea is that the new man should no longer be directly engaged into feelings. The idea is that uh, he will treat emotions, pain, and so on, even the most physical emotion, as just a sign. Information, not engaged in it. You probably know that already in his occasionalism defined fall precisely in this way. Fall happened when Adam 
by looking at his naked body, was immediately affected by it. He thought this is the direct interaction of gods. In paradise, people were like in this dream of utopian world. They made love, but they were not directly engaged in it. So, uh, 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 not only this techno utopia, but, uh, and again, I often quote a text from Trotsky, where he also subscribed to it. He said that somewhere that the goal of communism is to say to Trotskyans, goodbye, your job is done, you have uh, half the state of nature that you construct, and we will create a better man. This is why I think people are also wrong when they see the other better known uh, early Soviet dystopia, Samyakin's week as a critique of Stalinism. No, it's the critique of this pre-Stalinist utopia, the extract extrapolation of the Gnostic utopian tendency of the revolutionary 1920s against which uh, Stalinism precisely reacted. Uh, and I think that in this way one should of course not rehabilitate Stalinism, but see it as what it was. It's, this is why incidentally these people rather prefer to forget today. This is why Stalinist intervention into culture in the late 20s, early 30s, which culminated in the uh, in the, uh, in the inspiration of uh, socialist realism was immensely popular, genuinely. Because, you know, what was the situation before? You had all these crazy groups, futurists, uh, constructionists, etc., doing some bullshit which was extremely unpopular. For example, all these masterpieces, it's good to see at, at the commercial status of Eisenstein's Pyongyang uh, uh, and October films. But Pyongyang was so so, he even played in two, three Moscow theaters for almost one month. October played, I think, for one or two weeks in a summer uh, cinema. So people, what Stalin promised that is enough of these stupid avant-garde dreams. I will bring you back ordinary people with their love, passions, sentiments, and so on. And I claim that. Even at the level of, uh, of guilt, criminal system, Stalinism reintroduced humanism. Because what do these Stalinist monster trial mean? They introduce terms like guilt, culpability, repentance, which formal, I know what it in reality it was, but formally treat the victims as in some sense human beings. I mean, why this technognostic vision was more total self-objectivization, like they say, no, counter-revolutionaries are not in any meaningful sense guilty. They are like machines which work in the wrong way and they should be corrected genetically for whatever. The categories of guilt and so on simply didn't exist. And they were consequent. For example, one of the first things that Bolsheviks did was to abolish death, death sentence. Then, of course, when they were prisoners in civil war, uh, uh, they did what they came to do, they shot them immediately, no? And then Western liberals protested for that in 1919, oh, but didn't you violate your own proclamation? And they got the answer that they 
but technologically regulated spiritual withdrawal of post humans, then the capitalist commodification of our innermost experience or government, then the spiritualized communism which tends towards post human overcoming of sexuality and so on and so on. What makes Platon's essay anti so rich in spite of its apparent narrative simplicity is the lack of a general cognitive method. Where does the masturbatory machine belong within the space of these four coordinates? It is interesting to note that a similar celebration of desexualized vitality abounds even in Stalinism. Although the Stalinist total mobilization during the first five years plan tended to fight sexuality as the last domain of bourgeois this did not prevent it to try to recuperate sexual energy in order to re reinvigorate the struggle for socialism. In the early 1930s, a variety of tones were advertised in Soviet media and sold in pharmacies with names like I like them, Sperling Pharma, Spermor, Seca Fluid Extractum Testiculorum, and so on and so on. From today's insight, of course, the gadget imagined by Platonov neatly fits the ongoing shift in the predominant uh, libidinal economy today, in the course of which the relationship to the other is gradually replaced by the captivation of individuals by what Lacan baptized with the neologism Lacan's consumerist object uh, gadgets. But sorry, before I go into this direction, I want to emphasize that how what Ernie Platonov does in his so-called dystopia novels is something absolutely unique. It is a devastating, if you want, if not critique, but rendering open display of the nihilism of the Bolshevik passion, like most clearly in the pit where, again, the great mobilization stage for, you know, building the foundation for some big gigantic building that would uh, be the house of communism and nothing, just the holes dig up. But at the same time, it is absolutely wrong to consider Platonov in the usual sense. He remains within. He pushes the logic of communism, early communism, or dead, if you want, to its catastrophic nihilistic consequences, but not providing any withdrawal into all the traditional liberal subject or whatever or whatever. He strangely remains within. In this sense, I claim he is totally different from late humanist, let's call them humanist dissidents. They are a proper reaction to Stalinism, but in an imminent way. You know, some new historians, I think, pointed out in a wonderful way how, although Stalinism was what it was, extremely brutal and so on, and the level of culture, it rejects modernism and stage a big return to Russian popular humanist tradition. For example, one cannot dismiss this just as a regulation. 
in, I don't know when, 36 or when, when they celebrated, I don't know, some 100 years of death, I don't know, of Pushkin. You know, they printed Pushkin's collected works in some crazy number, 10 million copies or whatever. They were, with some exceptions, and the Spurious, they were constantly reprinting the entire Russian classic, or even the music. It's interesting that the, the, the composers who was selected as the classic form in the Stalinist period, the Russian composer, was not Mussorgsky or Rimsky-Korsakov who could be somehow in a manipulative reading proclaimed more leftist. Rimsky-Korsakov, when he was old, he even lost his post in the university because he was on the side of uh, 1905 uh, revolutionary, so on. No, it was Tchaikovsky, and which was proclaimed untouchable with all the consequences this intended. When they were reprinting in Stalin's period Tchaikovsky's letters, they were heavily censored, because if nothing else, he was purely uh, brutally and basically, not to mention other things like, you know, he was homosexual, but this paradoxically made him because he discovered that the only homosexual circle at that period, late mid-19th century in Russia, were rich, decadent noblemen and so on. Close to Tsar and Tchaikovsky was here extremely harsh in his conservatism. For example, when some revolutionaries state some, I don't know what, some terrorist act, and then uh, the Tsar, uh, the Tsar uh, stopped uh, death. Like, 
was anyone who saw the destructive part, the abyss present there, it was Platon. And he saw it much better than Western liberals. Recently, I saw a great impression of a dialogue between Stalin and George Herbert Wells, who visited Russia in 34, 35, and I had to laugh this one for this. Well, uh, it was published in New Statement in 35, after Wells returned, after celebrating, thanking Stalin, blah, blah. George Herbert Wells tries a little bit of a critique and said that no one isn't the essence of today's freedom that people are allowed to criticize that you see divergent voices and so on. And he well said that I admit that we in Britain don't have enough of it. But isn't it that maybe also you in the Soviet Union don't have enough of it? How stupid he thought he would uh, embarrass Stalin is the one. But Stalin immediately answered, no, no, we didn't get it. We have this even more developed than you. We just call it here self-criticism for the government. <laughs> and Stalin said, if you think you don't have enough of it in England, well, you can send you so Kakokandis will teach you about stupid guys. He talked to the mass Stalin. You cannot do that. You know, as Western liberals also accused Stalin when Stalin in the early 30s uh, stopped, uh, I mean, in the lower level of Then they protested, came who, but this is socialist humanism, blah blah. My God, they thought they would call Stalin. Stalin had a perfect answer. He said, This is the sign of the great triumph of our socialist education. Our country is so developed that people of wealth, certain already have the maturity of grown up men. Okay, fine, we have to pay the price. Death penalty for grown up men. No. So again, don't ever remember. I don't get any dreams that some stupid leftists have, you know that. Oh, if only, I don't know, the dream is this one, it's the worst stupid utopia that you can hear. If only Trump Lenin were to survive three, four years, made a pact with Trotsky, they would get rid of Stalin and they would have a wonderful pride in democratic Soviet Union with freedom, with Eisenstein, Futurist, Avangarda, popular with the people and so on and so on. No, I think after looking detailed histories that Trotsky deserved to lose, he was so arrogant and stupid in the middle of this. I mean, it was incredible, why Stalin was nominating people all the time to posts doing cover, cover, <coughs> cover with politics. Trotsky was arrogant, he just refused even to take Stalin seriously. I am the Trotsky, founder of Red Army, let that small guy do his stupid intrigues. I need one big speech in Politburo and I will make it and it will be over by Stalin. So he is incredible how he miscalculated. So again, the first point to say is this uniqueness of Adolf. This is the true core of communism. And I agree here that maybe, you know, we think it's, it's difficult to imagine anything worse than Stalin's death. Well, I'm almost happy to say we can if the utopia of the 20s would become a reality. No, I think, uh, again, I, I know this is an irony, or even physical stupidity, to say, 
situated to its brain has penetrated all aspects of our lives, from law to politics. As part of this neuro-revolution, huge military funds are invested in neuroscientific research. Just please check it out on the net if you don't know about it. The case of the famous DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, an American agency which coordinates three types of researches. Narrative analysis, augmented condition, apropos the lives of the Iron Man and so on, that say attempts to create soldiers with enhanced cognitive capacities and autonomous robots. The idea they will fight our wars instead of us. And uh, so the basic idea of DARPA is to protect the citizens of the United States from foreign bad guys by figuring out how vulnerable some people are to terrorist narratives. So in the first step, it seems just kind of military ideologies. The idea is how someone becomes a terrorist, narrative analysis and so on. But then here there is a catch. DARPA would like to revolutionize the study of narrative influence by, I quote from that program, by advancing narrative analysis and neuroscience to create new narrative influence sensors. This means that we pass from discourse analysis to direct intervention in the real. The goal is not to brainwash the potential terrorists through rhetoric or line of argumentation, but to directly intervene into his brain to make him change his mind. And again, this is not a dream. Agencies are already doing this here. The idea is to look at becoming a terrorist as a process, biological process in your brain, and to see how one can directly intervene into it. Incredible experiments, I met a guy recently in America who told me that incredible experiments are going on here. I like that. One of them is they already developed, still at the very primitive level, something which changes your perception of time. So that you know it's one minute, but in your experience it is protracted. Like you experience one minute as one day and so on. And then there are already ideas, I like, how to profit from this. Like, let's say I do a couple of serial rates and similar things, and I'm condemned to five years. But let's say that I know a big scientist of profit would be human. So it would be sad to lose me for five or ten years. So the idea is that I am in prison for five or ten years, but I get that pill so that in reality society loses me for one day. But I experience it as ten years and so on. Okay, my immediate dirty association would be why only punishment, why not sex, you know, like you are really doing it one minute, but it's so on But uh, so again, what I want to emphasize here is that we are not talking here about some uh, dreams and so on and so on. Uh, this, what DARPA is also doing is, well, basically they are already producing Spider-Man, uh, Iron Man and so on. They are very fast experiments to 
different ways of changing your genes to produce different versions of super. One idea is literally that of iron to directly wire your brain to some kind of a robot machinery in which you are a small body to make you extra strong and so on and so on. Uh, but uh, here, nonetheless, we should not reduce this post-human stance with the modern, we should not reduce it to the modern belief in the possibility of total technological domination over nature. It's wrong to claim that, and that's what makes this tendency so interesting. People usually claim, oh, this is the ultimate of Cartesian uh, outcomes, that even human nature will become totally disposable, we will create people whose emotions will be controlled at the same time their abilities, intelligence, etc. will be enhanced. Uh, no, at the same time, and this is absolutely crucial, as the guy who I really appreciate, uh, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, the French uh, theorist of catastrophes, uh, he detected this tendency, namely, a real reversal of the traditional Cartesian anthropocentric arrogance. Quote from Dupuy, how can you explain that science became such a risky activity that, according to some top scientists, it poses today the principal threat to the survival of humanity? Some philosophers reply to this question by saying that Descartes dreams to become master and possessor of nature is turned wrong and that we should urgently return to the mastery of mastery. They understand nothing. They don't see that the technology profiling itself, our horizon through convergence of all disciplines, aims precisely at non-mastery. The engineer of tomorrow will not be a sorcerer's apprentice, that is to say, a creator whose product will run out of his hands, because of his negligence or ignorance, but by choice, he will give himself complex structures for organizations and he will try to learn what they are able of by way of exploring their functional problems. The measure of his success will be more the extent to which his own creations will surprise him than the conformity of his realization to the list of pre-established tasks. And I think he is right here that beneath this broad Cartesian idea, tradition, tradition of modern science as to now we talk about the way of being, is a much more obscure desire to create a monster that will surpass us. What we want is, again, an artificial intelligence that will start to reproduce itself, to become more, we want to be surprised. And so I think that uh, uh, instead of, uh, instead of, uh, instead of uh, seeing it as a danger, I think that, first, okay, let me, uh, so that I know. Uh, instead of just dismissing this as a danger, I think we should see in it an extremely interesting, although dangerous, new constellation where we simply don't know where we are going. I think that on the one hand, yes, why not? In some sense, 
humanity is at this end. When we study, for example, the very basic fact of our being human, that you distinguish between inner and outer life. No, my thoughts are here, reality is out there. Without this minimal discharge, we are not human. This is being transgressed already. You know the old stories with women feeling in the media, how
this technological supplement, supplements, we no longer need out there big machines. It will be just tiny pieces implanted into us. So we will not even be able to, to experience that as such, as an external machine, you know. It will not be a universalized, let's call it dialysis, dialysis method. And I spoke with a patient, they told me there is something traumatic and humiliating in seeing the machine out there and you know you, your very life reproduction depends on it. No, these implants will become uh, invisible, doing their job at a level well below the threshold of our perception. What makes nanotechnology so thrilling is the prospect of again constructing objects in such a small dimension that all correlation with our ordinary life world is lost. So that it is effectively as if we are dealing with an alternate reality. But of course, an alternate reality for our daily experience is opaque. We are not even aware of it, but it can be uh, manipulated. And Lacan also implies again how Lacan uh, focuses on the change status of science implied by the profusion of objects entirely forged by science. Here's another quote from later on. What is involved in science? In science as we are now, as I might say, lumber, we did, I mean, have it present in our world in a manner that goes well beyond anything that might be speculated on as a result of knowledge. In effect, we should not forget that the characteristic of our science is not that it can produce a better, more extensive knowledge of the world, but that it may emerge into the world things that did not exist in, it, in any way at the level of our perception. So science and technology today no longer aim only at understanding and reproducing natural processes, but at generating new forms of life that will surprise us. The goal is no longer just to dominate nature the way it is, but to generate something new, stronger, greater than ordinary nature, including, including ourselves. The dream that sustains the scientific technological endeavor is to trigger a process with no return, a process that would exponentially reproduce itself. One can even imagine what can be the unforeseen results of these experiments. New life forms reproducing themselves out of control in a cancer-like way. Here is a standard description of this theory. Uh, Quote from uh, Artificial Life Becoming Revolution, a manifesto by Dorothea Alena Bell. Within 50 to 100 years, a new class of organisms decided to emerge. These organisms will be artificial in the sense that they will originally be designed by humans. However, they will reproduce and be evolved into something other than their original form. They will be alive under any reasonable definition of the world. The pace of evolutionary change will be extremely rapid. The impact of humanity and the biosphere will be enormous, larger than the industrial revolution, nuclear weapons, or environmental uh, pollution and all. This fear has its clear libidinal dimension. It is the fear of the asexual reproduction of life, 
the fear of an undead life that is indestructible, constantly is expanding, reproducing itself to self-definition. In short, the fear of the living creature called by Lacan, Lamella, living as a body, the inhuman undead organ without the body, the living pre-subjective undead life uh, substance. Because what makes gadgets so uncanny, far from simply supplementing human organs, is that they introduce a logic which differs from the normal libidinal economy of sex, human beings as beings of language. Techno gadgets are potentially undead. They function as parasitic organs without bodies, which impose their repetitive rhythm onto beings that they are uh, supposed to serve. And again, this is the vision Lacan sees in our world, as they say, increasingly populated by a game what Lacan called Latus, these undead objects. And again, the interesting point here is how, apropos this object, we have to include capitalism. We are dealing with a whole chain of services here. Scientific technology with its surplus knowledge, a knowledge beyond mere connaissance of already existing reality, then the capitalist surplus value, the commodification of this surplus knowledge in overflow of gadgets, and last but not least, the surplus enjoyment. Gadgets as forms of objective art, objects for So, what is the tendency here? If you give me just another fucking five minutes, maybe, uh, but in the sense of that we, you know, First, I'm sorry if you know this story, but I cannot express myself repeatedly. I claim that I see one perspective in this was nonetheless emancipating, uh, uh, an even authentic human level. This is the story I developed when Gandhi the newspaper asked me for the fate of romance, but I didn't dare to spend energy to develop it to the end. The story goes like this. We have different gadgets. We have, for women, so-called, we know the plastic penis, but we also have, perhaps I saw it, something called stamina training unit, which is plastic vagina. And I like it because it's so technologically efficient. It looks like a light, but it's done so discreetly that, you know, it's like a battery light from outside. Then you open it and then you have different plastic cards. You can put on the top the vagina opening plastic model, unopening or mouth. Then you have different models with more less hair. Then you can regulate the density when you put in this in and how quickly it vibrates. But, okay. Based on this, let me imagine a date which I think would fully satisfy. Let's say I flirt with a lady. Then we say, uh, fine, life is short, let's do it. Okay. But what happens then is we meet anywhere, my apartment, her place, and I come with my stamina training unit, she comes with her dildo, and what do we do? We connect both machines, we pull the plastic pins into the machine, and both machines run. <laughs> and our super duty to enjoy is out there. It's wonderful. You relax, you have a nice talk. <laughs> 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 
which are beautiful. I wish to be remembered one of my youth memories of how. That's the point, as it happened in Alenka already developed and we, you know, the lesson of psychoanalysis is very paradoxical, yes. Alenka revealed from child sexuality. These are, of course, where the babies come from. These are crazy fantasies. But it's wrong to think that once you are mature, now it's real sex, you know you don't need fantasies. No, you need the paradox of human beings is that you need this in more developed form, this fantasies to the end. And urge. I remember from myself, from my youth, it's great, but I like it. Uh, of course, I knew these stories, brain babies, no? But then I had a problem. I finally learned about sex, what to do. But I still, in my naivety, couldn't believe, this was almost a Catholic reaction, how could something so noble and innocent as a child come from naked? Then we 
have the third position, which I must say I quite, uh, I quite appreciate. The third position is the position of radical communities like Patricia and Paul Churchill, which is to claim, no, we can change our subjective attitude so that in our daily life we incorporate the results of communism. But I think it doesn't work. They cheat. They cheat in the sense that they simply claim that if I know that you are totally biologically, neurologically determined, uh, I will have to change my uh, notion of guilt, of blaming you and punishment in a severe whatever. Uh, I don't. I think where they cheat this radical problem is, is that, like, you know, the way they talk about all these things is still as if the old free independent subject is here. They don't do it. And here comes the interesting point. The only guy that, okay, not the only, but the guy who most radically brought the different conclusion is Thomas Messinger, the German communist, the Sintan Buddhist. He claims that the only thing, I would use the word philosophy, which really enables us to integrate to subjectively experience this fact that, you know, there is no self, we are just neurological apologia, is the Buddhist enlightenment. That there, in this idea of thoughts without thinking, there, when you, uh, when you approve the Buddhist enlightenment, there you really think without being a subject. There, enunciation and enunciated coincide, and so on, and so on. I have, uh, with this I mean now, uh, really uh, conclude, I have some problems here, and I think that, uh, I will just hint a bit, I don't like to develop it, that uh, it's interesting how in Buddhism, again and again, the same deadlock repeats itself, which points, I claim, at the persisting form of subjectivity. First, it's interesting how Buddhism immediately confronted the problem of God. You know, like, uh, okay, it's easy to say, like, Tibetan Buddhists, you know, oh, don't even hurt the worm, that's why allegedly when they, when they build a new house and have to dig a hole, you know, they're so attentive, they don't hear any words, and so on and so on. Well, they can be even scared, but it's another story. What I want to say is that from the very beginning, where even Buddha was old, when some kings converted to Buddhism, and that's why you have a state you need an hour. And they find it's beautiful how the three forms, again, like that old story about the God of the Kettle, Buddhism found three ways, each more ominous than the preceding one, to nonetheless justify giving in war. The first one is the standard one, you find it also in the West. No, killing uh, is allowed when you do it to prevent an even greater you know, like if I see, I don't know, someone pressing a button or who tries to kill thousands, I kill him, I prevent them from much greater suffering. You know, the problem is, of course, where do you stop? Because when Japan invaded China in early 1930s and so on, their uh, justification was strict in this one. Chinese are like spoiled people, we invaded them to bring peace and so on. Then the second part, is even more interesting. It is that uh, by uh, it is that uh, when 
when you admire Christians, you are out of the circle of life. So your acts are no longer inscribed into karma and you can do whatever you want. You find from the very beginning this life that killing is evil, but insofar as you as a person are engaged in it, if you are doing from the position of the one who is already liberated, then, because that's the definition of the liberation in Buddhism, it's something very radical. It's that you exempt yourself from this circle of life where your life is kept tracing, your life still no traces. So, as they say, kill whatever you want, it no longer affects Then, there are Buddhists who claim that, yes, every killing affects it, but they provided the most sophisticated version of the first line of art, which goes like this. Yes, every killing leaves traces. Like, I kill you now, I will be born as a lower world instead of, I don't know what, the, the lion or whatever. So, okay, but they say, if the one whom you kill, let's say, God and you, I cannot be, I kill you, just a little bit, I kill you, but I know that you are really evil and that you will kill hundred people in the next days. But you didn't yet kill anyone. In this way, if I kill you now, I prevent you from acquiring bad karma from future killings, although I got a little bit of bad karma. In this way, I save you and I did the ultimate heroic act of acquiring a little bit of bad karma to allow you that you will be born as, I don't know, another philosopher. <laughs> Which is 
inspired, you can get other Buddhism, extreme pacifists, and the most beautiful version of this was told to me by Ang Lee, the director of Chinese Broken Mountain and so on, who told me later about the Chinese Buddhist monk who says that he will refuse to become Bodhisattva. It's a really radical idea. Not only, not only to the level of when all Blackwater will be redeemed, but he said that we should include into this also all those who in hell are suffering eternal damnation. But of course, Anki being the nationalist, uh, I mean, more than no, he said I will end with that with one exception, because of the big form of culture and revolution, no, Mao should suffer forever, you know. <laughs> I said we have a slight misunderstanding here, and you will see when you will get a letter from me when you will be in Gulag, what is misunderstanding. But what I want to say is that, on the other hand, you have extreme militaries, like Japanese Buddhists, who spawn this, we are alive, and whatever we do, we are already doing in this, out of the cycle of karma range, and so on and so on. And just allowing another brief introduction. The problem here is also suffering. Here. This is such a suspicious entity. Ernst uh, Lubitsch uh, gave me an idea here. Namely, recently I read how in Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinsky, you find a beautiful problem. When, if let's say we are, which we are not good people, we will be in heaven. Will we be allowed in heaven to observe the suffering of those in heaven? His idea is yes. And he even says that seeing the suffering in hell will strengthen our pleasure of, of being in paradise. Now, of course, he immediately confronts the problem. How can, what kind of people we are, or how can we be part of heaven that you find excessive pleasure in seeing other people suffering eternal torments and so on and so on. The, the job that Akinsky does here is typical scholastic sophistry. He distinguishes two levels of pleasure. The direct pleasure in the pain of others and the pleasure in divine justice. In both. And he said, no, no, we don't really find pleasure in the suffering of others, pleasure just, oh my God, look at God's greatness, he really suffered those who are punished, and so on and so on. Of course, bullshit. So what is the true solution And I must tell you something, if I may post it to me, three days, two days ago, with Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury X, I debated this point, and of course, more. he agreed with me of my solution which is that uh, uh, we should imagine it the other way around. First, as a recognition that heaven doesn't work, you know. Like, in what sense? You are in heaven, okay, then you eat all the bullshit, then you die, you drink, whatever, you get tired. And then some angel who takes care of the administration of heaven comes and says, like, just to give you a boost so that you don't complain, let me remind you what the other guys are saying. No limits to build up the morale, you know, because it's obvious that in heaven you get immediately depressed and all. But then I imagine a further step, and here the honorable archbishop, they can repeat me, that imagine heaven, which is, as you know, 
sort of look if heaven can wait quite a nice place, basically, Daniel is the benevolent God, you know. And uh, there we have good times, we all know. No? We have sex, we drink, blah, blah. But I think that from time to time, then, the administrator of hell comes and says, Look, guys, we have a nice time, but I learned that now for five minutes we will be observed by hell. Please, to save our life here, pretend that you suffer a little bit so that we impress them, and then we can go on with violence. <laughs> totally correct theory. So, to go to the soldier, to go to go to the end, I think that uh, again uh, uh, there is uh, ah, uh, and the third. So we have one view of Buddhism. What does Nirvana mean? Is it in this minimalist sense that we are in Nirvana, we live in lightning, nothing changes in reality, or is it this realistic version that no one changes? Then Bodhisattva, yes or no? Why do we have to return? from the night is going to happen. And the third problem, the third problem is today it's proven that more or less that the state which at least looks like Nirvana, you can achieve it here or there this biogenetic lesson or whatever, biochemistry, you can achieve it through means. And some Buddhists, I read a couple of books, I spoke with them, have a great problem here because uh, biochemistry Already, they are already producing what ironically is called to enlightenment peace, you know, which means why go to that bullshit of spiritual training and so on? You take the key and you are there. And it's proven that it makes it painful then, through all the measurement of our brains and so on, that our inner experience of enlightenment is exactly the same. So, what to do? The desperate attempt of some Buddhists is to distinguish. Undeserved from deserved happiness. Like the potential happiness doesn't count because it's undeserved. But I think this is totally against the whole logic of Buddhism and so on. You know, it introduces a certain ethics which is which is uh, totally wrong. Again, because of all this, I think I don't have time now, now I'm really surprisingly the end. Uh, I think that uh, Buddhist ethics doesn't work. Not in the sense that the Buddhist enlightenment is not a radical, authentic experience. I just claim that ethically it gets caught in a dilemma. Like it works. You, you can be a super criminal, you can be the opposite, etc. You cannot consistently legitimize good. And here, some of them admitted the honest ones. Here, Buddhism cheats. They like to claim that before doing the high spiritual exercises, you have to begin with modest, uh, no, not just be kind, be following mo modest ethical rules. But then the obvious question arises, and it was not to explain by Buddhism. Why then all bullshit? Why cannot I go on, sorry to be so vulgar, but that's the point. Why can't I go on? Torturing people and so on, and still have my life. Why not? And it's an embarrassing question. They cannot answer it. The solution is me, the Western Judeo-Christian, even Islam. I say Islamic one because you know there is a line which is often brought from Islam, which is beautiful. 